Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you conversations with authors near and far in these pandemic times. Um, So a couple of updates about the store. Um, Skylight, if you're not familiar, we are an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We just expanded our operating hours, so we're now open 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. And again, that is, uh, you know, with a mask and socially distanced and, you know, all the stuff we know how to do now. A couple of other exciting uh, announcements. We've got um, a new book bouquet program that we're just launching, and that is... um, they're going to be bookseller curated gift bundles you can buy for your friends and family or for yourself. Um, our first two bundles are a kid's birthday bundle featuring some of our favorite picture books and a brand new Skylight tote bag. And the other one is Abolition 101 for those of you who are uh, beginning your studies in anti-carceral politics. Um, so we've got some really great selections in there. I hope you guys check those out. Um, they're going to be up on the website soon. All right, so today we have co-authors of a new book called Beyond Kuiper. Am I saying that right? Kuiper? Kuiper. Kuiper. All right, thank you. I'm going to learn a lot today, I think. Uh, (laughs) Beyond Kuiper, the Galactic Star Alliance. The authors are Matthew Medney and John Connolly. I'm going to read their bio so you can get to know them a little bit more, and then uh, we'll hear from the book. Matthew Menny is the CEO of Heavy Metal Entertainment that encompasses Heavy Metal Magazine and all other media ventures. Matthew has also been an adjunct professor at NYU, teaching classes on IP creation and digital marketing strategy. John Connolly is an aerospace engineer for Lockheed Martin, who performs mechanical design for NASA deep space missions with three satellites using his designs currently orbiting our planet. That's so cool. Um, Matthew and John, welcome to the podcast and congrats on the book. Thanks, Maddie. It's great to be here. Thank you, Maddie. This is awesome. Um, so, John, you want to read a little bit of the forward? Sure, I'll, uh, I'll give our audience a taste here. Uh, all right, Beyond Kuiper, Galactic Star Alliance, forward. Curiosity is the spark to all exploration. Are we alone in the universe? Difficult to say. We acknowledge the vastness of time, the cyclical nature of civilization, and the obscurity of our own history. When we began debating, Why hasn't sentient life been found in our galaxy? All those years back, we were among the era of exoplanets. Every week, it seemed NASA would announce a new outpouring of worlds, all vastly beyond reach, but each recalculating the likelihood of potential Earths. 
But to us, the numbers seem staggering, compelling. Surely there are others. So if our galaxy is full of sentient life, we thought of a simple logical reason why no one has said hello. No one wants to. Stepping back and casting an objective eye on ourselves, it seems painfully obvious that humans lack a fundamental respect for their planet and each other. They possess extremely short memories and long grudges, and the idea of giving them the motivation or tools to hasten their expansion seems downright foolhardy. That being said, who are these judges? From that simple notion birthed a million questions. How is faster than light possible? Could you have cohesive interstellar civilizations without it? How could you even govern a coalition of not different countries, but of species? Each question only created another, and each answer built our world piece by piece until it spanned thousands of answers and millions of light years. As for the title, from where would our judges watch us? Boom, boom. <laughs> for those listening, if you enjoy a good uh, audio book, the Beyond Kuiper audio book has a uh, fully uh, soundscaped score that is attached to it. And the forward gets very impactful when you uh, hear that last line, guys, with the, uh, with the music behind it. But, uh, but John, I mean, can you, can you believe it's out or it's about to be out? No, it really can't. It's, uh, it, it is a surreal feeling. And, and it's, it's been that way for a while. I mean, remember when we first got the first copies when you, say, when you sent me those before we did the final grammatical edits and I was holding it in my hands. My initial thought was just, wow, this is kind of anticlimactic. We've spent three and a half years writing this. <laughs> and now it's, you know, just this, you know, nine by five, nine by six, you know, couple pounds, you know, physical entity and just like all of our, our ideas and dreams are now just there for everybody else to judge. But that's actually apropos. So from where would these judges lie is on the other side of this podcast. You are the real judges. <laughs> yeah, it's very accurate. Uh, but I feel, I mean, we, we put a lot of, gosh, just all the time with the editing. And I, I think we're ready. I feel ready. I, you know, we've been going around to different bookstores and, you know, different independent bookstores, respectively, in the LA area and the Denver area. And it has been very positively received yeah. thus far by, by people. You know, they, they seem excited for a new science fiction adventure. I, I agree. And, and, and you know, for, for the people listening to the Skylight podcast, why don't we give them a taste of the science? Because I think for us, right, um, you know, most sci-fi authors probably lean a little bit more fantasy and, and fudge science where needed and, and make it really uh, fantastical so that the story works. But I think for us, something that, you know, from the press and reviews we've gotten so far have really um, uh, uh, um, shined a light on how great the science is. And, and for us being that, that was something that we spent excruciating hours on making sure was you know as real as it could be i think that could be a fun a fun little exercise here for us to talk through some of that science i mean everything you know i, I, I think to start people might ask so i read the first page of the book and it starts in the year 2092 and that seems pretty specific of a year and there's actually a really crazy fun reason for that answer and without giving away plot and without saying 
the the end result of it that year came about came about because we were looking to find a year that was very specific in the solar system right why don't you talk about that for a minute yeah i mean we had we knew we wanted the story to be set in the future we wanted it to be far enough in the future that we could take very existing technologies now and just kind of extrapolate them out uh, rather than you know but we didn't want to be so far that now to, as to your point, like technology is starting to blend into fantasy and you know, other things that just are completely outside of our realm. But we were trying to hit a specific planetary alignment in the solar system to, to optimize this voyage. And, and, you, and you, you mapped it, right? <laughs> you, you went in for this planetary alignment, which if you want to understand what it is, you got to read the book, no spoilers here. <laughs> but the general idea of a planetary alignment we didn't just pick a random year and say, hey, the planets are going to be aligned this year, poop de la. We said, okay, we need XYZ planets to be aligned. And John, being that you're an actual aerospace engineer, actually went out and plotted that and figured out the correct year for that to work. How did you do that? Uh, well, it was a combination of how long we wanted our the time in our story to take place was one factor and then the other factors were trying to get this correct alignment because we didn't want to have a story perfect example okay the voyager probes were sent the real out voyager probes the real voyager probes were sent out on a very specific timing of a planetary alignment between the four major outer planets so it could use gravitational slingshot maneuvers to travel from one to the other minimizing its time maximizing its velocity and able to use as little fuel as possible so ours our voyage you know we it's not exactly like that in, in meaning that doesn't use all of the same maneuvers but you want to have all the planets be along the relatively same trajectory and certainly on the right side of the solar system because it's not going to be a story where someone's just bouncing around like a pentagram all the and, way around and, the and sun. there was no reality <laughs> where we would just say they were aligned even if they weren't no because i mean we were you know we want to bring it's it helps so much for a story if you can take aspects of the world that are real and put it in it, you know, as simple as the planetary alignment, we didn't want someone to go along and be like, well, you know what, those planets were actually completely out of whack during that story time. It just, it, it, it's that little extra detail that I think gets the audience to buy into it. In the same way of how we picked, you know, strategic military targets for that, like during World War III, or we were looking at, you know, real different historical events that, you know, characters are referencing or you know, all, locations of technology. back to real moments. Exactly. So, so, you know, part of the story is about obviously getting beyond Kuiper, like its namesake. Without talking too much about the length of time or anything like that, and again, for anyone listening, we are desperately trying to give you information without ruining any of the chapters but john talk about the you know litany of journals you read to come up with a type of fusion uh. drive <laughs> that would be 
comparable in this time period. Mm. So that was a good one too. You know, we wanted, we didn't want to tell a story of where humanity is all of a sudden at a Star Trek level. And, you know, we magically, not magic, I shouldn't say magically, but, you know, our, we have these insane technological leaps and now we're using technology that is to us magic. You know, we wanted to take things that humans could, that is just considered theoretical, you know, this considered theoretical, but is doable. Really the limitations are resources and you know, material sciences or energy needs, but you know, Fusion drives, for example, though, you know, they're used in the expanse, but you know, nuclear fusion is a real thing. We see it in the sun. We've been able to make small scale uh, experiments with it here. The dream of the earth is to reach self-sustaining fusion. You know, we wanted, I was looking through decades of NASA documents and studies that go all the way back to the 80s sometimes of you know, comprehensive plans of propulsion drives, what kind of fuel would they use, um, how much fuel would they need to bring, how fast could they go, all of that then circled back to tying into our journey and how that would affect it. Uh, you know, we, we really let the science shape sort of like a lot of the, of the broad parameters. And, totally. you know, and, yeah. and to put that in perspective, you would say you spent what? A thousand hours reading a variety of journals that that gave you enough information for you to then make an educated statement about what our fusion drive would be in seventy years. I mean, I think so. I think, think you know between the journals, between different physics research, between the you know rocket equations that I was doing, uh, orbital mechanics that I was studying. Yeah, it. I don't know. I didn't tally. It certainly feels like a thousand hours. It was, I mean, it, 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 it was you know, hundreds and hundreds. I know that. <laughs> I think, it, I think it all culminated for me. You know, it, it's one thing to know it being on the other side, writing it with you. It's another thing to see like a, you know, like a website, a reputable website, like screenrant.com calling it the most accurate science ever used for a space faring intergalactic ship in fiction. Right. So when, when they said that, I was like, Damn, he really did research that because they grilled us when we talked about the science. So that was that was really cool to see. And I mean, you know, even the book starts for, for everyone listening. When you buy the book, there's, you know, 40 pieces of, you know, beautifully illustrated art throughout the book that we'll talk about in a minute. But at the front of the book, you get this units of measurement conversion. And it's basically the galactic standard converted to the metric system because in America, you know, let's ignore that system because it's it's flawed for many reasons. But the uh, the metric system and the galactic standard, you you literally wrote out an entire you know conversion chart and and created your own you know temperatures and distances and times and electric currents and a few other things at the, yeah, lum the lumin luminosity, molar mass. Uh, yeah, there's. I remember, I believe it's seven, seven or eight, I think it's seven, um, fundamental measurement methods that we've defined in the metric system that aren't based on each other. You know, you default all the way back to, you know, duration, mass, and um, velocity, 
are you know the three main not the three main hang on pause for a second <laughs> i'm spacing here why am i the science geek stumble a little that's fun <laughs> all right no i did have it no i had it right yeah time we call oh dura uh, duration distance and mass that's what i was trying to say my apologies I love it. um well yeah i mean just it whenever I've, and Matt can attest to this too, whenever we've been reading something, if you have somebody, you know, mention, oh, it's going to take 10 seconds, or it's going to take some amount of hours, or it's going to, you know, it weighs 15 kilograms, those are earth terms. And it doesn't make sense to us to, when you're, when you're reading a story from an alien perspective, that they would be using them. And I mean, on, on some level, you could say, well, okay, those are you know, from, from a writing perspective, you could say those are equivalents, but to me and to Matt, they really rip you out of the story. So, I mean, it's, it started from a, a literary reason. We wanted to have units of measure, you know, unique to a world that brought you into it further. Then, you know, it's one thing to just state those, you could come up with a bunch of names that could be for a bunch of different uh, units of measure, but then you still have to find out what those sizes are, you know, and how they equate to humans as well as you know is it using the same powers of 10 method that the metric system does um, are they tying back their units of measure to universal constants uh, and also you just you know if you're picking a number here does that mean that you know if i'm going to say that a second or sorry a minute is a nola uh, is the value that's you know 10,000 times that, is that going to be a really strange number? Because we, we do want to have some ease of people understanding. You know, we didn't say that a minute equals, you know, like 1.819 something, 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 nola prikes. Uh, you know, we try to keep things in, in units that you can, once you, you see them initially and you look at the units and measure, you really should just know it pretty easily. And then once you're reading a book. We want you to get into the world, but not have to think about the math that we made to do it. Exactly. Right. Um, and, 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 and just for everyone listening, I 100% take 50% of the credit of 100% of everything John did. So just, <laughs> just so we're all on the same page there. Now, transversely. Well, you, you, you were the one who pushed for it. I, I was, yes. I, yeah. I, 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 I thought it was, you know, if, if, a, if a creative and then a painter slash aerospace engineer partnered up to write a book, I thought it was important that we leveraged all of the aerospace man's brain as much as humanly possible. Um, but let, let's move on to what makes, you know, this book a little bit more unique than other books. And, you know, even though I'm the CEO of Heavy Metal, and Heavy Metal is obviously this great illustrated magazine that's known for its art, we started writing this book five years ago at this point. And from the beginning, we knew we were gonna put art in the book. So that has nothing to do with me trying to parlay it to Heavy Metal, but that was just always our vision, was we've always seen this book as a TV show or a movie later on, and we wanted to have these scenes that were burned into our skulls in the book. And, and you know, with that, we were able to, you know, we, we worked actually with a handful of artists until we found UT. And uh, UT is based in Turkey, and, um, you know, he, he's really the third, you know, 
quote unquote author of Beyond Kuiper because he's brought all of this incredible art together and taken, you know, our words and, and brought them to life in these, in these, uh, these moments at the start of every chapter. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, John, did you have anything else you want to like add to that? Because I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to underplay the art or not talk about enough, but when you actually hold the book and you see it, I mean, this is like, you know, beautifully painted art that like, there's no chance I have the skill for, you know, maybe if you spent all the time in your life, you could, but I mean, what, what do you think? No, so I'm glad you brought this up because this actually sort of allows me to expand upon a question that we were asked um, last week. Exactly to your point, we first envisioned this in scenes. You know, we, we talked about the scene of, you know, two people talking about the nature of humanity while standing on a spaceship passing by Saturn. Or, you know, if you had, you know, different alien worlds or, you know, our, our cities flooded by, um, by global warming. And yeah, I mean, we, we knew once we were writing, we always wanted these scenes. And then we also definitely understood that, you know, when we started really chopping back on a lot of our editing, there was just so much we wanted to describe, but we didn't want to get bogged down in too much exposition. And I think that, you know, it's, it's cliche, a picture's worth a thousand words. I mean, I think these pictures are worth a million words, um, <laughs> but- Nice. We want, you know, it's, I don't want, it's not a compromise. It's, it, it's a compliment to it, but you, you know, it does allow, you know, a person can read this entire chapter and have all, you know, I think they can equally envision something in their head, but then they can just see this art and it just, it, it gives it so much more life. It's, it's, you can't compare it. It just, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and, and for anyone that's listening that decides to go buy the book and give it a read, you, you'll see what we mean in, in the art and the planets and the maps. And, and honestly, they've only gotten better uh, over time. And in book two, you know, there's even bigger art and crazier art. But in addition to art, we brought the world alive through music and sound. And if you buy the printed book or if you just get the audio book, the audio book is a 14 hour audio movie that we produced ourselves and then partnered with Podium Audio for distribution. And uh, the, the audio book has a 22 track score that, that we wrote with our uh, partner, Kyle Perrin, and then he voiced every character except for two. And we have, you know, the legendary George Romero, who's the son of George A. Romero and the, the zombie Lord. And then we have Dylan Sprouse, for anyone that remembers shows like Sweet Life of Zack and Cody or Big Daddy, he was the kid and now he's all grown up and he plays our main protagonist, uh, sorry, antagonist in the story and, and, and the, the soundscape of the audiobook, you know, it brings me back to what I loved about the Harry Potter audiobooks. And mind you, they didn't have, you know, music or sound, but Jim Dale brought characters to life and you could close your eyes and see the movie. And that was, you know, what I think we were really hoping to do with, with our audiobook. And, and I was more on the inside on the production than you were, John. So, I mean, from your point of view, do you have any questions for me on it or any thoughts or, or what, what are your thoughts on the audio side? 
Well, I mean, it's, it's also fantastic. I know it was, a, at times it was a little, not sort of black box-ish, but just, you know, music is your realm. I mean, there were, I remember uh, initially in the process, you, like for some of the earlier chapters that you and Kyle were scoring, you were sending me a lot of pretty raw uh, sounds that you were compiling with him. And I loved it. And there would be some times where I would want to comment on it or, you know, give feedback, but I don't have nearly as much of a musical background. So I also didn't want to give feedback that wasn't, you know, useful within the framework of making music. So, I mean, th these two gentlemen, you know, af after a bit, I basically just let them drive. I mean, I'd say that probably my biggest contribution to it would be the initial compiling of other, you know, music and soundtracks that we wanted, you know, and, and we both that we both pulled from, you know, Hans Zimmer and from Lord of the Rings and from the MCU and, and, and Star Trek. And we used that. And then, you know, we paired the book as well as Mark Mothersburg, John Williams, Howard Shore, Hans Zimmer, all, all inspiration. Clint, Clint Mansell. Oh, the best, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, we, you know, we spent almost a year producing that album, which is crazy. And then Kyle's sound effects. I mean, everyone listening, if you, if you listen to the audiobook and you get the book and you follow along, I mean, he, he created raindrops through a synthesizer. And uh, we have this promo video we're going to put out next week that like shows how he did it. To me, it's something that, that he spent like four hours crafting for a seven second scene. And it was just the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard in my entire life. And like when that came alive, right, and Aubrey is walking in the rain, I'm just like, holy cow. The, I, 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 I hear the movie and I see it in my, in my head. And, and it, was, it, was, uh, it was pretty wild. It is, it is not a audiobook that you can multitask to. You can drive in the car. <laughs> But that is it. Because I mean, remember when we were having the listening edits where you, we were combing through, or I was just coming through for pronunciation and I'd have, and we didn't have the music in them yet. Uh, so I was listening through and there'd be, you know, a moment I'd try to fold some clothes or I was you know, doing something else at home and I'd just be like, crap. No, like that was just too complex for me to, um, to you know, to give anything less than my undivided attention to, and yeah, it, it's so good. And the, the music just adds, you know, musical scores add so much emotion to to stories. And to have all of that, you know, the the full sort of really movie quality sound in it, it just brings it into a life in a way that I've never experienced any other audiobook. I I, I couldn't agree. And that's why we did that. That, and that, that. that is that is why we did that. You know, we a lot a lot of a lot of craziness went into to making that happen. But uh, we think you guys are gonna love it. And I mean, you know, speaking of craziness, like when you go to the back of the book, you'll see Earth and galactic timelines. You know, Earth timelines that go back, you know, basically a hundred years from 2092 and galactic timelines that go back a million years. Ah, I mean, John, they go back, we were, uh, were they go, I was going to say, give me a second. A hundred years. Yeah, yeah, like, 100, like 120 million turns. Yeah, so I think oh, man. 100 and 
Oh yes, and a turn, a turn is scaled to the main planet of the galaxy. It's one. Hmm? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, just looping. Yeah, you're talking. Uh, a turn is the GSA equivalent of the Galactic Star Alliance equivalent of a year. A turn equals one point three three. You know, so it's four years for three turns. Um, and I guess that was just one last thing about the units of measure is, you know, humans at one point picked an object and were like, this is a kilogram. They did the same thing with a foot. They did the same thing with a second. Uh, so each of those different types of alien unit of measure needed to have some sort of, you know, ancient alien standard that aliens millions of years ago came up with and then that became adopted by a larger alien collective. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh man, <laughs> I, 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 it's crazy because like we haven't just like you know uh, chit chatted in a while, just like about the book. And and, and you know I, I I appreciate all of you Skylight listeners letting us just reminisce about it. Like uh, this podcast will come out four days before the book hits shelves, but we're recording it about a week and a half before it hits shelves. And this is like the first moment that we're like thinking and talking to each other about it. So we appreciate you, you listening along in our uh, reminiscence here. The, um, you know, the, the one thing that I find to be most interesting is, you know, we initially wrote the book thinking that the, the fan base was going to be pretty hard sci-fi niche. And then, add, and then we, we, we wrote that knowing, hey, that's the that that's the type of book we want to write. So we're okay with having that small that, that that small sector of dedicated people who just love hard sci-fi. But what's been pleasant is in the early reviews, you know, both family and uh, critics, people are saying that the journey and the characters' emotion make it broader spanning, even though the science is pretty specific. And that is a unintended delight that I was not expecting. Agreed. I wasn't, I mean, <laughs> we've, we've had some close friends and significant others read the book who we never thought, well, we never thought, who we just know aren't sci-fi fans, but they loved it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we did do a lot of hard, lots of hard science, but once again, because that science was still grounded because it's grounded, I mean, there's just still, you know, base information that I think almost any person knows about the world and they can follow along and are, yeah, I mean, we, it's hard sci-fi, but I mean, it's a, you know, the science isn't the story. It's a, you know, it's a framework and it helps shape the world, but, you know, a, a story is, is characters and those, I mean, I think we poured, you know, some of ourselves, we poured people that we know. Um, and then there were, you know, characters that we just wanted to be the character that we hadn't seen yet in a story. Uh, and yeah, that's the uh, feedback that we've received thus far has been very good. People want to follow the adventures of these people and these aliens and see where it goes. And we look forward to being able to continue to do that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I mean, you, you know, you're such a science aficionado, and obviously I am by, by choice, but you are by trade. And, you know, I, I, I think 
you know, we don't have to get too deep into the Kaleans, but this is a story that I always love to talk about because I think it is the perfect example of the marriage of how we work together. Um, so for everybody listening, we're going to walk you through right now the creative process of how we go from my not really hard science idea through the gauntlet of fire into a hard science idea. So we have this I know where this is going. <laughs> so we have this species <laughs> called the Kaleans, and the Kaleans are a sentient robotic species, and we won't bore you too much with their origin, except for the fact that their planet's core is a metal used to create their synthetic skin. And we wanted that metal to be really cool, like vibranium or antimantium level cool. And I said, why don't we have a neutron star, a dead neutron star, be the core of this planet to create the um, to create the metals needed to then be mined and created into these exoskins? As I said this to John, I could watch his face melt into oblivion due to the insanity of a neutron star. And for any of you listening, just so we're on the same page, a teaspoon of a neutron star weighs more than our sun and five times no, our planet. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, somewhere in between those values. It's, Thank you. Um, what's a, a good example? I mean, I think, a, I'm trying to remember here. I believe a teaspoon of a neutron star about weighs as much as an ocean liner, just to give you an example. I mean, that's still, it, it's matter so insanely dense. When Matt came to me with this, you know, my astrophysics background just goes, you can see the rage on my face. I'm just like, how dare you propose something? So, well, because we you know, once again, we want to use the laws of physics as much as we can. And so a neutron star is so dense that if it was at the core of a planet, it would just implode the planet into itself and, and then, then i would respond now, with, that, and that sounds cool and john's like you can't do that and i'd have a panic attack about the fact that we have this book that is all hard science and then there was one small aspect that i was trying to get a little fantastical with he would just get so angry so again similar to the fusion drives he went into a dark hole of journals for days and i thought that we were just done on the subject and i had lost which was really unfortunate because I really wanted this core to be something unique. And then John calls me and says, go. Well, I, I was say, if, if memory serves, I think you're like, we need, you know, you're like, okay, if we can't have a neutron star be the core of the planet, you got to figure out how to make this work. And I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> so I thought, okay, what is a slightly less dense object? Um, as I say, which brings us to a white dwarf star. Um, once again, those kind of a similar issue of where you couldn't just have normal matter that makes up the crust and mantle of on top of a white dwarf star. I mean, it would, one, if it wouldn't make everything just burn up because of the, of the radiation, it would also implode it. And so then I was like, okay, well, then why don't you just have pieces of a white dwarf star? And I had to explain to him that white dwarf stars are held up by electron degeneracy pressure, which 
is a way of saying, you know, when normal atoms have collapsed to a point that they are no longer held up by the normal forces. And so it's really just this type of force and type of repulsion that all these electrons have to each other, which is keeping the star still giving its shape. Um, but if you take a small piece of a neutron star, no, sorry, if you take a small piece of a white dwarf star and took it away from the white dwarf star, it would blow up. Effectively, if you took a small piece of a white dwarf star and, you know, I was holding it um, right here in my room, it would blow a piece of the crust off the earth. So, and I was like, all right, <laughs> well, I still want you to figure out how to make this work. And I was like, okay, fine. And so then I dove even deeper into the very theoretical astrophysics uh, idea of a black dwarf, which is a white dwarf that has cooled off to the point that it has crystallized and is inert. Um, the only issue, it's not really an issue, is that no one has ever seen one of these black dwarfs because it is theorized that it would take a significant portion of the lifespan of the universe for them to cool off. So I was like, okay, we've got our material. We just now have the issue of it wouldn't exist then. So then we came up with having some you know, in the background, uber civilization that had created a Dyson sphere around a star to create a, like a temporal bubble to accelerate the death of a star and its white dwarf so they could eventually get a bunch of black dwarf matter. And then they shattered the black dwarf apart and pieces of it ended up on Kalea. And that is how you get Kalean steel. And, and for everyone listening, that is a... <laughs> Great 10 minute interlude into <laughs> how we made fantastical fiction into relatable science. <laughs> and, and, and that those types of conversations uh, happened over five years to build the infrastructure to this world, um, which is pretty, you know, incredible to think back on. And, you know, the Everything even from how, uh, and, and the last thing that I want us to really dive into today is, is what I think everybody on this call or on this podcast is hoping to hear about is how the hell do you do light speed? If this is a heavy science fiction, hard sci-fi book, how do you travel through vast parts of space at very fast speeds? Because as we alluded to earlier, the humans do not, but the namesake of the book is the Galactic Star Alliance. So there's clearly aliens and there's clearly a whole galaxy waiting to be explored. So John, why don't you, in your least scientific way possible and most palatable way, explain patching? Okay, so I think for starters, just from a, a literary point, you know, we could do, we could have done a universe of which there was no faster than light. However, you just wouldn't really have much story or, or certainly you wouldn't have a story within the context of a couple characters because it could take hundreds or thousands of years to travel between places. So we knew we wanted FTL. FTL stands for faster than light for those who are about to learn more engineering acronyms, stay on board. <laughs> um, but 
we also wanted to not violate known rules of physics. So for example, in order to not violate um, general and special relativity, Einstein's rules of where, you know, once again, you can't go faster than light. So you got to get around it. You get around it by a couple methods. One, warping, you know, similar to what Star Trek uses. You compress space in front of you and stretch it out behind you and you move across the physical space at less than light speed, but then in terms of your, your net motion, you are moving faster than it. Uh, now we wanted to have something that was unique to our universe. So patching is the galactic standard method of traveling faster than light. And so patching actually creates a type of war, you know, tear in the fabric of the universe that moves a ship into another dimension call flow space. Now in flow space, uh, you are also not moving faster than light, but traveling in flow space, if then patched back out into our universe, you will have traveled an equivalent much further distance. So you can travel at multiples of thousands of times normal speed in this flow space dimension. And that is the framework. That's how all of our aliens move and they have different patching speeds, different spacecraft based on, you know, if they are military or government or if they're pirates or it's illegal or legal can move at different speeds. They can access these different realms of the patching uh, flow space dimension and go faster. Um, faster. The faster you go is the, um, there's a greater difference between the speed that you are in our universe, and then when you're hopping to the next one. Easiest analogy is if you were standing on the shore of a river and you were about to jump in, it's going to be easier to jump in and not drown <laughs> if you're jumping into calm water or slow moving water than if you are jumping into water that is you know, turbulently being blasted out the bottom of a dam. So, you know, these ships that are capable of very fast patching have to have this, you know, extremely advanced technology to allow them to be able to survive that. Love it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's amazing. So the, you know, patching and there's different degrees of it, right? You have patching one through five. So what's the different speeds? So uh, it's, if you think about it, really, it's more like there are a variety of different flow space dimensions. You know, there's patch zero through patch five in our story. Uh, patch zero is, as I said before, older ships. Uh, it was the first one to be accessed. And over the millions of years of the galactic civilization, they, you know, have improved their technology to be able to access these faster flow spaces. Um, we made a decision creatively in the story that, you know, it's a galactic civilization and it has faster than light travel, but we did not want to have instantaneous travel because we really want you to still get the feeling of the scope of a galaxy. Space is vast, so incalculably vast. And to have someone just be able to jump point to point from anywhere in the universe it just shrinks it to a way and you know sometimes it can create conveniences of writing and mm -hmm. we just we really wanted to to and, build and, and, and yeah that, that, that's a good that's a good note we 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 made it 
we made a, pr a pretty good point um, that anything that left us with a convenience, we threw out. We really try to make this as hard, you know, I mean, this is a, <laughs> this, this is a uh, you know, a, a, a sense, a, a self-torturing self exercise we did, because if there was something that could help us, and it was even a little bit of a cheat, like something that you, as the reader, would never figure out, but John and I knew, we threw it out, and, and it, <laughs> it definitely made it. I have a... I have yeah. a great example of that, yeah, actually. Um, you know, when we were decide, as our story was building and we had different alien characters in certain parts of the galaxy, and then we wanted to advance the story to another setting, it was like, wait a second, how much time would this take? And then realistically, would they even pass this way to pass by this planet or like no they couldn't have visited that planet because that's in a different sector so they they have to go here first and then to here and yeah i mean we easily could have you know just picked planets and no one was going to be able to challenge us on like oh well when patch five it was going to take you you know that many uh frikes no it was gonna take you that many prikes to get there um but we would know and I mean, that's also why we spent, you know, talk about a thousand hours. We, we probably spent thousands of hours on building our codex and our series Bible because you're creating a vast world that you want to have people in and you want them to believe. And if you're going to build a world that big and have stories running all the way through it, you better make sure that you don't have any plot holes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um... <laughs> oh man, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I guess, guys, to, to wrap it up, I just want to say thank you so much for even taking the time to listen. If you thought this was interesting, uh, and we really did kind of an exercise in science here, uh, John and I have a new podcast called Putting the Science in Science Fiction that was birthed out of this book. We had met with the Columbia Space Center's president, Benjamin Dickow, on a Comic-Con panel where he was grilling us on the science. And that was so fun that we decided to make a podcast out of it. So if you're listening to this and you enjoyed the science of the fiction, you can find Putting the Science in Science Fiction in the podcast stores. If you are interested in the audiobook, but you want to pick up your hardcover from Skylight, have no fear. The inside first page gives you a QR code that directs you straight to the audiobook that you can buy on Audible. So you can listen and read together. And John and I just want to thank Maddie and the Skylight team for letting us do this. And uh, th this was a ton of fun. Thanks so much, guys. Maddie, thank you so much. This was, I, I thank you. I also appreciate to give us the, the space to just talk free form. It's, it's really, <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah, I'm, it's, yeah. So, it's always so fun. I never know what I'm getting into. Uh, and, and this was great. Like, I really did learn a lot. I think, um, John, your metaphors, the, the water and the dam, that was spot on. That helped a lot for, for my little, like, you know, humanities brain. So um, I think your, your guys' podcast must be a blast, too. I'm going to have to check that out. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a Thank lot you. of fun. It actually launches next week, which will be a week. It'll launch a week before this comes out, but a week after we recorded it. Perfect. <laughs> Synergy. So, I love yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening. Um, 
Matthew and John, thanks again for taking the time to uh, introduce your work to our audience today. Everybody, I hope you pick up a copy of Beyond Kuiper. I've learned how to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> um, over at Skylight Books. And um, guys, I hope we get to uh, host you in person in the store someday soon. Amazing. Thanks so uh, much. I've Thank, thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Skylight. And yes, I look forward to being able to travel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.